0: Well, grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 7. And it would be good this morning to have your Bibles in front of you. We're going to look at chapter 7 and 8, but I've only printed chapter 7 in the worship guide. Again, if you're joining us and don't have a Bible, message me or email me. We would love to send you a Bible free of charge so you can have God's Word in your own home and in your own hands Zechariah chapter 7, starting with verse 1. I'm going to read verse 1 through 14. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regimelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh month for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus, the land they left was desolate so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on it. Lord, help us to understand. Give us ears to hear. Don't Let us become like this generation of Israelites who heard your word and made their hearts diamond hard lest they hear. Give us ears to hear so that we might turn and turn to Jesus and turn from sin and experience new life and your power. For Lord, we need your Spirit's help. And so help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul says this about the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is not about talk, but about power. And yet, I would imagine that many of the lives of Jesus' people are indistinguishable because we lack that power of God. In fact, oftentimes when Paul speaks of the gospel, he speaks of it as God's dynamite, his power that is unleashed in the world. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to the world and that kind of power changes things. I often say that in the south the great threat to the church is that not that we will be invaded by the world but that our the invasion of the world will look like this, a Christless, powerless version of Christianity, where we go through the motions but don't experience the power of God in our midst. And Zechariah is writing to a people who had slid down that slippery slope. They had what Paul describes as a form of godliness, but denying its power. Even though God had dwelt with his people in Israel and they had Prospered because of his presence, their lives did not reflect the redeeming presence of the Lord. And so, what God says in the second half of Zechariah 7 is that as a result, he had sent them into exile. It was a form of discipline, he had disciplined them so that they would return back to their humble. Reliance on his redeeming presence and power. So if you've been with us, we've been studying the book of Zechariah. And the first six chapters are a series of eight visions. Well, beginning in chapter 7, we transition in the book of Zechariah. And we know it's a transition because of verse 1. Verse 1, Zechariah gives us a date. This is one of the ways he structures his book. This now happening, the word of the Lord, is coming during the fourth year of King Darius, the king of Persia. And and we really have three points that I want to give us today. Three, so if you're one of those who takes notes and likes points, this is your morning. First point is the presenting question. The second point is the purpose of discipline And then the third point, the promise of restoration. So the presenting question, the purpose of discipline, and then the promise of restoration. Well, it had been two years since Zechariah's night vision. It's December 518. His first vision had come in 520 BC. The temple rebuilding project had started around that time. But it was still two years from completion in 516. So we're right in the middle of the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. And the people of Bethel, a city 12 miles from Jerusalem to the north, had seen the rebuilding in Jerusalem. And so they sent a coalition down to Jerusalem to ask the priests and the prophets if the fasting that they had been observing in the fifth month needed to end and the reason that they had fasted during the fifth month was because it was the month of the year that the city of Jerusalem had fallen to the Babylonians in 586 it had been roughly 70 years the time in Jeremiah that God had said the exile would end. And so they're sending this coalition down to ask if their time of mourning that was visibly manifested in their fasting was over. And you see, that's that's one of the functions of fasting amongst God's people. It's, it's unclear whether they had fasted for the entire month, which would have just been maybe certain meals or just during the day and they ate at night, but obviously they didn't go without food for an entire month straight. But what is the point is that this terrible event of the fall of Babylon needed to be physically manifested in fasting. We've had a couple of fasts in the last month and fasting in general seems though to be A spiritual discipline that has fallen out of practice in today's church. But fasting played a prominent role amongst God's people. It was a physical act of mourning. Of calling God's people back to himself. Why? Because we're physical people. It's not enough just for repentance to be in our hearts. It needs to come out because that's what we've been made. What is true in our hearts always needs to come out. And and fasting serves in this way as as one of those disciplines that shows our neediness and our reliance on the Lord. It's easy to get into automatic mode, to begin to think we're self-dependent, to believe that lie. We, We work and we get paid. We go to the grocery store and make our own purchases and we slowly forget that it is the Lord who provides daily bread and we are Utterly dependent on his grace and love and favor. And so the people of God fast to remind themselves of this. In mourning, in repentance, in reliance. And so the question that the people of Bethel are asking as they send their coalition down to the priests and the prophets is, Is it over? Is the discipline of the exile over? Can we get on with life now? Can we return back to normal now? Perhaps you've had your children ask this and, and when you've, you've taken something away from them, can we have it back? And you would ask, have you learned your lesson? And that's the response that comes from the Lord as he outlines for them the very purpose of his discipline of them. Notice the function of the prophet here they they sent while he he the people of Bethel send this coalition down they do so to ask so the priests and the prophets and the people inquire of the Lord through these two men, these mediators through these two offices and then God actually responds because he's a God who hears his people and speaks to his people, but he speaks back to them through Zachariah the prophet, that was the prophet's job to, to speak forth from God. He was God's mouthpiece and the Lord's response though is a little uncomfortable because he digs under their behavior and into their hearts. And this is often what he does if you are going to experience the power of God. We have to be ready for him to dig into the hidden recesses of our hearts, to have him inquire of us, because this is often how he digs. He usually digs by asking questions. When Adam and Eve had sinned and they hid themselves in the garden, they needed to experience the redeeming power of God. So we asked them a question Where are you? He knew where they were, but he is digging, he's penetrating. And so, verse 5, he asks this question. When you fasted and mourned, in the fifth month and in the seventh month, these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? It's He's going after their inward motivation for outward obedience. This is where, again, the Lord often focuses his attention. God is not happy With you just doing outward things for him. For instance in Amos. He says I hate and despise your sacrifices. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. He's not a Lord who's God who is. Who's lacking. He doesn't need for us to bring things to him. He is sufficient in himself. And so the Lord who is sufficient. Is concerned with the inner disposition of our hearts towards him. He's asking them. Have you learned the lesson. That I was teaching you through the exile. Because during times of prosperity. Verse 7. This is what they had. Were not these the words the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with their cities around them in the south and the lowland were inhabited? They didn't listen to him. They had enjoyed their prosperity. What their hearts revealed during times of prosperity was that they were incredibly self-inclined and that they were neglecting the weak and the needy around them when They were prosperous. They should have been generous so that the whole community flourished. But instead, they neglected the poor and the vulnerable. Verse 8 of chapter 7. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah and said this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy. And judgments here really is justice. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. This is actually a common refrain in the prophets. Some have called it the trio of the oppressed, the widow, the fatherless, and the outsider, the sojourner or the traveler. And to this trio, Zechariah is adding the poor because this is what the Lord wants of his people. They want him, them, us, to reflect his heart towards the weak and the powerless and the vulnerable. The genuineness of your devotion to Jesus is always manifested in our context of our disposition towards the weak. And you see in God's kindness, he had sent numerous prophets prior to the exile. In fact, most of the books that we have that we call our prophets are written prior to the exile, warning God's people of the danger that would come as he disciplined them. But verse 11, they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law of the Lord sent by the Lord of hosts, by his spirits, through the former prophets. And because they had Refused to hear the convicting word of the Lord against their selfishness. The end of verse 12. Great anger came from the Lord of hosts. He judged them because of the hardness of their hearts. And because they refused to care for the weak and the vulnerable. And because they hardened their hearts to the word of the Lord. The Lord invaded Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. And so the Lord is asking of this coalition from Bethel. Have you learned your lesson? And are you ready to live the fruit of repentance? And then he asks the question. We're assuming the answer is no. Which makes chapter 8. Verse 1, a surprising turn, because chapter 8 begins an oracle of restoration. Verse 1, and the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain, because the Lord is returning to his people. Their fasting is going to turn into feasting. Verse 18 of chapter 8. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. He says, thus says, The Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth month, the fast of the seventh month, the fast of the tenth month shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts, therefore love, truth, and peace. And the basis of this great turn, this turn of redemption to a people who had not yet learned the purpose of the exile, this great is not the faithfulness of his people but rather in spite of their unfaithfulness he is going to remain faithful to his promises because verse 1 I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy that's the language of love a passionate commitment to his covenant people even though they might not Remember the covenant and keep it. Although they might not follow in his ways. God will remember his covenant of love. With great jealousy. With passionate commitment of love. He's going to fulfill what he had promised to fulfill. Because judgment and curse never get the final word. The Lord in his redeeming love gets the final say. The promise of chapter 8 is that God is going to return to his people with his redeeming presence, and he will, as a result, take that which is desolate and make it fruitful. Verse 4 Thus says the Lord of hosts Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, this, this place that had been overrun by the Babylonians in judgment is going to return to life, each with a staff in his hand, because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the street. It's going to be a time of jubilation and joy, because the curse for their unfaithfulness in verse 10 was joblessness and shortage. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, because there was no safety from the foe who went in and came out, for I set every man against his neighbor. But judgment doesn't get the final say. God's covenant loved us. Verse 11 But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. And as a result of the Lord's presence amongst his people, that which was desolate under judgment is going to flourish. For there will be a sowing of peace, verse 12. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all of these things. For where the Lord is present, he is either present in judgment or in redeeming love. And if your faith is in Christ, the judgment of God has fallen on Jesus. So now when He is present in our lives, He is present in faithful love, which means barrenness springs to new life. And there are these barren places of our lives that when He exposes them, it is to enter in so that by His presence they might become fruitful places. You see, Israel had to wait for these promises to be fulfilled. This day never came to pass in all of its fullness for the generation that heard this. The temple was rebuilt, but it was a relatively dead structure. The glory of the Lord never returned to that place in its great capacity. Partly because they were never faithful enough for the Lord to return. But mostly because he made them wait Because he had something better in mind. You see, we just celebrated Easter. Because the resurrection of Jesus is his victory. He went into the grave bearing God's judgment. He was resurrected to bring new creation. The new creation that's promised here. In other words, he went into the desolation of judgment and he rose To new creation life. And so when you become a follower of Jesus. You become a temple of God. By the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. God liberates us from the bondage to sin. And the kingdom of darkness. And he doesn't just liberate us. But he actually takes up presence in us. Not just with us. But in us. By his Holy Spirit. And as a result, we begin to flourish under his reign because his redeeming presence is in our lives. And these barren area of our lives are places where we can begin to see flourishing start to happen. Because Jesus is here. And when God is present with his people, neither we are quite right again, nor is the world quite right again. In fact, what God's presence does is it creates tension. As he fights to bring about flourishing in these barren places, we still struggle. That's why the Christian struggles. Struggle is not a sign of spiritual depravity. Struggle is a sign of the Spirit's presence as he wars against these areas of barrenness to produce new life. And that creates tension. That's life between the resurrection of Jesus and his return, right, is a life between the vows. It is like the, the life that is between the vows of a marriage ceremony and the wedding night. If you stop to think about it, the timing of a wedding reception is a little bit awkward. We pause the event, right, and we begin to party. The marriage began. With the vows that were made and the pronouncement. This is husband and wife. They are now one flesh. But it's not yet consummated in the wedding night. And there is this delay in the event. In which we party. And we party because we're looking backwards to what had happened and celebrate it and we're looking forward to what will happen and celebrate it we party and celebrate in light of a past event and a future event that are tied together as one grand thing that God has done and this is this is what I want for us inwardly if you're a follower of Jesus you are experiencing the redeeming presence of God as his temple. But there is a day in the future when all of these promises will come to their fulfillment and we will flourish because God will be present on earth in the fullness of the new creation. And the streets will sing with children's laughter and the old will sit Never to die because they've been raised to new life. And there will be no more coronavirus and no more death because Jesus has come in his full redeeming presence. Verse 13, this is what happens. We move from death to life when you become a Christian and we move from permanent death to permanent life when Jesus returns And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Now as a result, fear not and be strong. That's the shape of the people of God. We begin to look like the saving God. You see what happens at the end of verse 8, at chapter 8, starting with verse 16, is God returns to the accusations of chapter 7. But the pattern is so important to experiencing the power of God that transforms us, that is in the gospel. Accusation, gospel, new obedience. You have not been these things. You have Failed in all respects. I am going to bring about my redeeming presence in your midst. Now, let's be a people who walk in new life. This is what Paul means when he says that the love of Christ compels me, controls me, motivates me. We've been moved to death, to life in Christ, experiencing the power of God. Now, as a result, fear not. Let your hands Strong. Let Jesus, by his Spirit, so strengthen you that we can live in a way that he calls us to. The shape of God's people should look like the saving love of God. So let's return back to the accusations in chapter 7, verse 9. This was what those who've experienced God's saving love should look like. Render true. Judgments. I said earlier, the Hebrew is actually justice. And now we think justice is simply as punishing wrong, but the Hebrew word mishpat means something so much more. It means like to rule and lead in a way that's both fair to all and brings about the flourishing of others. And notice that the direction of that is to pay special attention to the vulnerable. Don't show favoritism to the rich and poor is one of the ways that this should manifest itself it's why james gets so upset and condemns the church that he's writing to for showing favoritism to the poor that is not the shape of god's people we don't show favoritism to the poor because to the rich and but we show favoritism to the vulnerable we take what is ours and and show justice so that those who prosper who are weak and vulnerable can prosper this is one of the reasons why Students, why abortion is such a big issue for the church. Because it's the shape of justice that a little child in a woman's womb who has no rights and no power and no riches and is completely dependent on the protection of another should be protected by all. But it's also the reason that we should care about justice and the judicial system in our land not showing favoritism to the rich and powerful, but equally putting all people on the same ground. Take your riches another way and find the oppressed and vulnerable and use your resources to be advocates for them. Call Kelly Myers at Highland Park and ask her how you can help her people, not because you want to be a hero, but because the love of Christ compels you into justice call the place of hope call the people's table there are plenty of places around that we've attached ourselves to to be people who work out justice now secondly show kindness and mercy to each other this is a very interesting choice of words they are difficult to translate directly into English because in The Hebrew word for an Israelite, these were loaded theological words. Kindness. The word combines three things. The Hebrew is hesed. It's God's covenant love for his people. And so it combines three things. The help is absolutely necessary and life-giving to someone who is in a position to need help. And the helper helps out of his own freedom, out of love. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness or goodness or love. And if you combine all three of those concepts together, you come up with something like this. Come and help at great expense to you and no expense to them simply because they are in need. That has been God's help, heart towards us in his help in Christ. And the second word, mercy, is often translated as compassionate. It tells us what shape our help should come in. Compassion, it always conveys a heart that is moved, a deep inward emotion. It's a powerful word. For instance, when the writers of the Old Testament need to reach for the kind of, of emotion that a mother feels for an infant when they are in their need, this is the word that they reach for, the compassion a mother has for his child. It's the same rude Root word, also for womb for that reason, is It should look like this. Your help should be moved from the same place that a mother is moved to care for her vulnerable infant out of compassionate love. Brothers and sisters, outrage is not a fruit of the Spirit, but gentleness and kindness are. Thirdly, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the alien, or the poor. These are the easy ones to take advantage of because they are without an advocate and have no power or resources on their side. They are just, in any society, the easy ones to take advantage of. They are, as a result, in God's kingdom, the ones who need special care These are the ones who need the most because they are the ones who have no protector, no advocate, no provider. They are utterly without and they have not the ability to go get it. And I'd add to this list in our society, single mothers, vulnerable widows, those who um, are the most in need, the outsider. You just draw the list. and You see what God is saying. Is that true spirituality moves us toward those who are without. Because that is an evidence of the resurrection power of Jesus at work. That has made us apprehend our need for God's mercy and our utter helplessness in his sight. And then made us see that he's the God who restores Grace is seen in these moments. Our grasp of God's grace towards us is seen in these moments when we interact with the widow, the fatherless, the alien, the poor because they don't supply much in return. In fact, they just take from us. In 2010, three researchers from the U.S. and Israel tracked the ruling of eight judges in over 1,100 parole hearings over 10 months, so it's a a large sample. The results were overwhelming, and that led them to this conclusion, that the chances of a prisoner being granted parole, being shown mercy, was completely dependent on the time of day that the judge heard the case, because and these judges had over 22 years, on average, a 22 years of experience, right? They said they have been doing this for a long time. But if you were going to receive mercy from the judge, it was dependent on whether the judge had just eaten or not. Prisoners' odds for getting paroled started out high in the morning right after breakfast, when about 65% of the prisoners were granted a parole And then for the next few hours, the chances of getting a favorable hearing started to plummet. That was followed by cycles of peaks and valleys that repeated themselves through the day based on whether the judge was hangry or not. Right after lunch, right after a mid-morning snack. Now, people who have fed on Jesus if you have seen the depth of your sin and I am utterly destitute before God based on any status of my own and yet Jesus has become an advocate, has given me all of his resources, I've inherited his riches and become a son of God in the son of the God and he has not held back anything and all I do is bring my neediness and sin To the king's table. And he feeds me at great expense. If I feed on that. Then the result will be. Verse 23 of chapter 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts. In those days. Ten men from the nations of every tongue. Shall take hold of the robe of the Jews saying. Let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this is our confession. We are not naturally like this. And this is our hope. That by your grace in Jesus Christ and by your spirit that dwells in us, that we will become like you are towards us in Christ. Make us people whose lives are shaped by the cross and who live by the power of the cross for the sake of the vulnerable around us. Work out justice through us so that the world might tug at our robes, at our shirt collars and say, let us go with you. For we have heard that the God who saves is with you. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.